Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. is not tens of thousands of fanatics that go and kill people. That is a problem and we need to deal with it. But it's tens of millions who follow an ideology right. that is deeply hostile to the West that's based on what I would say is a perversion of Islam, but is being incubated in education systems around the world where millions of these young kids are taught a view of religion that is essentially hostile to the modern world. Former Prime Minister Tony Blair talking about his vision for the Muslim world. Now, the war on terror and the consequent focus on the Muslim community has created a climate where law enforcement, government agencies and public officials often view Muslims through the lens of security. Since 9-11, a generation has lived under the greater securitization of our community. Governments of all hues have maintained a steady accumulation of powers to deal with terrorism and its related causes. We have, in the past 18 years, become well accustomed to Islam as a constant feature of the news cycle, and it's usually for all the wrong reasons. This climate has also led to a general atmosphere of fear. It is not uncommon to find members of our community self-censoring, carefully wording what they say on the members or in religious speeches. More worryingly, it is also common to find voices within our community that supports all the projects of Western governments, no matter how ill-conceived. Many ulama and community leaders have succumbed to this climate of fear, hoping their institutions will not be the next target of some malign legislation or speech by a Home Secretary hoping to win support from his party base. However, within this climate of pessimism, the campaigning organisation CAGE stands out almost uniquely for its call of resistance. Today I have its director, Dr Asim Qureshi, here on the Thinking Muslim podcast to discuss his work. 
Asim is known to be a tireless advocate against the excesses of government power. Recently, he was stopped at Heathrow Airport under Schedule 7 powers and detained for three hours, questioned about his faith and forced to hand over his electronic devices. Asim is a prolific writer. He has authored a number of books, including a widely acclaimed piece on his philosophy of disobedience. Asim has led investigations into Pakistan, Bosnia, Kenya, Sudan, Sweden, USA and of course the British government. With his team of researchers, he has written and published many reports exposing the use of unlawful detention, rendition and torture in the so-called war on terror. Dr. Asim Qureshi, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah and welcome to the Thinking Muslim podcast. Thank you for having me. Now let's start by looking at your organization, CAGE. Um, can you give us a quick background to your organization, please? Uh, yeah, sure, absolutely. Um, so CAGE uh, is an advocacy organization. It really started off um, as a very humble project in 2003. Um, there were many British men and Muslim men who were being detained at the US naval base uh, of Guantanamo. And there seemed to be a lack of response from Muslim community organizations um, in relation to the, the detention of these men. There was no advocacy work taking place, no campaigning work. And so despite efforts being made by a group of campaigners from South London um, to try and get Muslim organizations involved, there seemed to be some reticence. So really CAGE started off as a website you know, by these campaigners simply to just highlight the issues that were going on um, at the naval base and how these men were being deprived of any due process, um, they were being deprived of uh, the rule of law, and how all of this amounted to uh, systematic torture, especially because they had no legal representation and were being held uh, incommunicado. Uh, so that's that really started off um, this this website. And, and what the website did is that it gathered material from both the Arabic language world as well as the English world and you know, merged it all together onto one website. A lot of the Arabic language material being translated uh, into English, which actually resulted in the first really comprehensive list of detainees being held at Guantanamo. Uh, in fact, the Washington Post used uh, our own list or on, their, on their own website as well as many other law firms and uh, organizations out there. So it was important um, that you know we played that early role. But what was interesting is that because Cage really um, presented itself as being a, a Muslim-run organization, what happened is that there was almost this trust that was built into the project. So then we started getting calls from family members all over the world who had been affected by Guant Guantanamo and by you know, the whole program of, of secret detention that was taking place post 9-11, you know, people telling us their stories. And that convinced us um, really with, you know, my employment having come out of just come out of my master's um, specializing in international law to play a more active role researching and investigating and writing about the abuses that were taking place. So we actually had primary source access to the people that were being most affected by these policies. And I think a large part of Cage's early work that really stands out is that close connection to impacted communities. 
Asim, in a recent paper I read on your website, uh, you said the Muslim community is now a suspect community. Uh, why this label? So the, the term suspect community comes from um, the troubles in, in, in Northern Ireland, in particular a professor, Paddy Hilliard. Um, he's the person who first uh, termed um, uh, this, this phrase. And really what he was saying is that the whole of the Northern Irish community had been turned into a suspect community because they couldn't trust, the prevailing power structures couldn't trust in their relationship with the communities themselves. And therefore the whole community was treated with a degree of suspicion. Now with the war on terror, what's happened is that that level of suspicion has gone global. So not only has this taken place in the UK, but we see the, the language of the war on terror being picked up and replicated, whether it's in Uzbekistan, by um, Islam Karimov, or um, in, with the Uyghur in China, uh, even with the Rohingya, uh, the narratives around the, the security threat that is po posed by the Muslim is, is used kind of hegemonically. Uh, across the world and it's used in order to present the Muslim as a threat. And so by virtue of a, a Muslim's existence, it had, doesn't even have to do with their specific religiosity. They are presented as being potential threats. Therefore, they enter into this matrix of suspicion. And Asim, do you believe the Muslim community in the UK are also viewed through this lens of suspicion? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, there's been lots of really important academic work that's been produced around this idea of the Muslim suspect community. And really from the very beginning, you know, NGOs like uh, Liberty were talking about this, but, you know, in many academic papers as well. Uh, it's very interesting to to read the works of professors like uh, Lale Khalili, you know, academics like Rizvan Saber and Francesco Ragazzi. They, they write um, in detail about how in almost every single aspect of Muslim public and private life, um, there is a kind of lens of suspicion. So for example, if you homeschool, this is something to be suspicious of. If you to send your kids to an Islamic school, that is something to be suspicious of. If you are a Muslim governor, there is something to be suspicious of, right? So like it, wherever you go in society, the, the kind of shadow of suspicion is cast on you. Now, would your detractors argue that you're overstating the case? Um, Muslims in Britain are not treated like uh, the Irish were treated during the Troubles. Uh, that community uh, was marginalised and separated from society. They uh, did not have employment rights. Uh, they were restricted in terms of their movement. There were miscarriages of justice, for example, the Birmingham pub bombings uh, and uh, other uh, really important uh, cases where uh, Northern Irish citizens were uh, arrested and in many cases uh, uh, they spent their prison sentences, yet they were innocent. Uh, no such injustices seem, at least apparently, to be happening to the British Muslim community. I mean, how would you respond to that? Yeah, I'm, I, I don't <laughs> agree with that because I think that the the forms of uh, repression that we face are much more invisible um, in the sense that, uh, yes, uh, internment itself was particularly draconian within the, the Northern Ireland context, but actually the, the amount of legislation that 
was enacted during that period, it doesn't, it pales in comparison to, you know, what the war on terror has produced post 9-11. So I think that's important for us to, to already establish that actually that the, the type of legislation that we have now never existed at a time of violent. Even if you look at, for example, statements of Tony Blair during the Irish context, when he was talking about seven days pre-charge detention, he was talking about that as being unconscionable. This is the same man who attempted to bring in 90 days pre-charge detention, um, predominantly for Muslims in the UK. So, you know, it's important that we we get that, um, you know, kind of context, uh, we bear that context in mind. Um, remember also that right at the beginning of the war on terror, they did attempt to bring in internment for 19 men uh, who were all foreign nationals, who they immediately detained without charge or trial. Uh, fortunately, the, uh, our House of Lords, now the Supreme Court, they, uh, they, they struck that down, uh, but it didn't stop them from finding alternative ways to detain these men. So they brought in control orders and they brought in deportation orders and many other forms of orders that were kept behind secret evidence um, in a way that would actually make the Diplock courts in the Northern Ireland context look like they were open and a form of due process comparatively. You know, I mean, as things stand right now, if you go through a secret court system, say, for example, uh, in, a, in a deportation order case, neither you nor your lawyer are permitted to enter the room while the evidence by the government is being given against you. Now, you know, if you take any you know, repressive regime in the world that has a system like that, it is called out constantly and consistently. And yet somehow this uh, farce is maintained in the UK that we still have a just legal system when it comes to counter-terrorism policy. And, and, and largely, I would say that is um, due to the complicity of, of our own liberals who accept that these uh, measures are necessary, uh, even though, of course, they are the same people who would never be affected by this legislation or policy. Now, you've mentioned there um, the anti-terror laws that were passed by the Labour governments during the 2000s. Uh, can you talk us through uh, the various anti-terror laws that were passed and, uh, and just explain uh, why those laws were passed and the impact, I suppose, those laws had upon the Muslim community? Yeah, sure. OK, so I mean, the first thing to note is that the actual Terrorism Act 2000 was enacted prior to 9-11. Uh, in many ways, it's it's probably one of the most significant pieces of legislation, especially because it contains uh, the definition of terrorism that we have right now, which is very wide and it's very vague. Um, so that technically it predates 9-11, but of course, the, the, the great impact that it's had is um, in a, in a post-9-11 world. It also includes uh, Schedule 7 of the Terrorism Act 2000. And Schedule 7 is extremely important because this is the mass profiling and intelligence gathering exercise that is used at UK ports so that you can be detained up to six hours, um, previously up to nine hours, and questioned about your views, questioned about anything, um, questioned uh, about the passwords to your devices. And if you refuse to re respond or to answer or to obstruct in any way, you will be prosecuted and convicted as a terrorist by your refusal to answer or by obstructing in any way is itself the offense. And therefore, it's a pretty much an automatic conviction if they choose to charge you um, because there is no real justification against that. It's what's known as a strict liability offense. So what we have to understand and put into context is that 
nearly all of these pieces of legislation that emerged after 9-11, they are all what's known as in the uh, preventative crime space. And what, let me explain what I mean by that, because the vast majority of violent crime in the UK, that is, that is a political motivation, is not prosecuted under terrorism laws, even when they're Muslims. So, for example, Michael Adeblagelo's killing of Lee Rigby, the uh, Operation Crevice, which was the fertilizer bomb plot, um, the airline bomb plot uh, in 2006, all of these acts and these plots where there was an actual physical threat of violence taking place were all prosecuted under legislation that exists outside of, outside of terrorism laws, whether it's the Foreign Explosives Act or the Offences Against Persons Act. The previous criminal justice system is more than capable of dealing with violence. Where terrorism laws are used predominantly is where violence hasn't taken place. So this, for example, if you are in possession of a terrorism publication, you will be convicted as a terrorist. Again, it's a strict liability offense. The burden of proof is reversed. So it's on you to prove why you're innocent rather than the state to prove why you are guilty. It's how they managed to secure a high number of terrorism convictions. That's why they, when we receive terrorism statistics from the government and they say this many people were convicted of terrorism in 2018, what we should ask is, well, what, they, what were they convicted of? Was there any risk or threat to UK society? And, and, and we argue in the vast majority of those cases, there was never any threat. Uh, and actually, there was no terrorism plot or offence. Um, and we've seen this with the far right as well, when they've got actual plans of mosques that they want to blow up and caches of guns and bombs that they're um, stockpiling, they are not prosecuted under terrorism laws. Uh, they're prosecuted under the Foreign Explosives Act. And, and uh, actually at this cage, we would argue rightly so, right? But we want to see Muslims who are involved in you know, politically violent acts or planned politically violent acts to be prosecuted in exactly the same way to not lionize the offense, to not exceptionalize it, to say, well, you know, if somebody's planning to commit murder, then actually they should be called a murderer. Now you can explain why they might want to have commit murder, but actually uh, we don't think it's helpful to use this exceptional legislation in any way. Right, okay. And 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 so the Labour government um, introduced uh, these raft of anti-terror measures, but, but it didn't have an impact on their um, electoral support, especially from within the Muslim community. Um, traditionally, Muslims uh, have supported Labour, and and that really didn't seem to be affected by uh, what seemed to be a greater securitization and focus upon the Muslim community. I mean, what? Why do you think that is? I mean, I think um, you know there is a dynamic in relation to the the politics of power that we always have to bear in mind that when power exerts itself um, and you know, prom makes promises of closeness to power and closeness to um, being able to, to help and assist the community in terms of its everyday needs. When the communities, they don't see the violence of what's taking place as being specifically applicable to them, then they will, they will almost, you know, kind of compartmentalize that violence because they don't see it as somehow being relevant to their world. And rather, they're more interested in the kind of promises that are being made around, say, for example, immigration. So one of the things that we know about Jack Straw is that he made lots of promises about uh, visas and um, 
you know, bringing family members over from places like Kashmir to the UK. And, and, and that for, for some of our communities it was, was more real and more important than say, for example, the, the overall relationship that Muslims have in the long term to the state and the way in which the state produces its narrative of securitization, thinking that these things would not apply to them uh, even in the future, right? And I think uh, if, if our community is guilty of anything, um, it is guilty of short-termism in its approach to its understanding of how to deal with power uh, and, and what making those relationships will mean in the long term to their own um, ideas and their own desire for self-determination. I mean, it's commonly seen that after the Blair period, there was a reversal of uh, a lot of these anti-terror laws. Uh, the Conservative government at the time, or the coalition government, in fact, with Nick Clegg, uh, were in favour of a more libertarian approach to civil liberties and uh, a number of uh, the more uh, extreme measures such as 28 days detention without charge were reduced to 14 or control orders were reduced. Uh, a number of these measures were relaxed during their period. Uh, is that your experience of the Conservative administrations? No, I mean, that's that's really not the case at all. If anything, there's been a a hardening. Uh, I mean, remember, control orders just had a rebrand. They were called TPIMS instead, uh, terrorism prevention investigative measures, right? So there were there was some lightening of the um, uh, some of the restrictions on on individual lives, but there were other parts that were more problematic. So, for example, forced exclusion orders, where they would send the problematized individual off into I don't know Gloucester. Where the family couldn't even, you know, meet with their with their loved one, they were isolated completely from society. You know, these types of things they took place. But I think the most important part of this is that, you know, having interviewed, I think almost thirty men who were held under control orders previously, and then afterwards into TPIMS as well. The consistent thing that they told me is that actually they could deal with the measures. Right. They could find a way of, of, of living through the measures. But the hardest part of their cases was the secret evidence. They couldn't deal with not knowing what it is that was being alleged against them. And that was the part that they found hardest. And it's the part that sits at the center of all of these arbitrary decisions that are made about uh, individuals and how they pose a threat. So whether you're looking at citizenship deprivation, deportation orders, passport revocation, TPIMS, even now where children are being taken away from their families, you will see this again and again and again, that um, uh, what, what the, the families say, those who are suffering say, is that we, we would just like to know what it is that we're being accused of, because we can't, we're not being told that. And I think that's the most important part of, of, of these policies. And, that, and that's carried through and actually gone to a whole different level under the, the, the coalition government and under the Tories. So now we see, of course, there's over 100 people have had their citizenships revoked, and that's largely been uh, under the Tories. And of course, we can't disconnect that from other things that are going on in relation to Windrush um, and the treatment of uh, young black men in particular who are problematized by the state. You've mentioned a few times secret evidence being used in cases. Can, can you elaborate? What, what do you mean by secret evidence? Okay, so let's go back to um, 
like understanding how different types of laws are used, right? So remember, I already said that when it's actual violence, then it's very rare for a terrorism law to be used. Terrorism laws are largely used where non-violence um, is, is, is taking place. Now, a step down from actual terrorism laws being used are what's known as civil orders. So civil orders, like I've just mentioned, include things like citizenship deprivation and deportation and various other forms of, of, of order that don't go through the criminal system. Okay, they, they, these now enter into the civil system. Now it's in the civil system that you can bring um, these secret evidence types of cases, what's known as public interest immunity. So the government makes an application that this is a national security case. We can't reveal what our sources are. Uh, and sometimes those sources were based on torture, evidence that was gained abroad, and for various other reasons, maybe like cooperation with states that are involved with, with problematic behavior. Uh, and so the burden of proof is lowered in the civil system. It's not like in the criminal system where you know you have to have a very very high burden of proof and high evidentiary standard generally for for most types of criminal cases in the civil system it's lowered significantly and and what's interesting about this system is that it's an arbitrary decision of the home secretary so you don't have a trial when the decision is made you just receive a letter telling you that your citizenship has been revoked from this point onwards you are in an, an appeal system you have to appeal that decision so you already you're on the back foot because a decision has been made about you and about your status that you weren't able to challenge before the decision was made. That's why this, this whole system is so problematic. And we're talking about, you know, you know, the hundreds of people who have been affected by this process in particular. It's not just a few here and there. Hundreds of Muslims have been affected by this. But of course, most people don't know because it's largely being used against those who are foreigners, it's being used in a secret system where it's difficult to, um, to humanize these people. Even actually within that system, the individuals are designated with letters. So already that process is dehumanizing because you don't know who they are. You're just given like letters like QQ or ZZ or whatever it might be in order to talk about your case within the, the, the kind of the legal framework. And currently, what stands out as the most egregious piece of legislation and, and why? Oh, without a doubt, the Counterterrorism Security Act 2015. And it's um, placing um, the prevent duty at a statutory level. I mean, at least what it places at a statutory level is um, the requirement for all those in the public sector and large parts of the private sector to... Um, uh, to stop individuals from being drawn into terrorism, right? And the predominant way that's done is through the PREVENT duty. But of course, PREVENT predates 2015. So are you saying in 2015, it now made it an obligation on, as you said, public bodies and some private bodies to uh, to engage with the PREVENT process? Right, absolutely. That's exactly what happened. Um, and the, and the, the reason why that's particularly uh, worrying is that prior to the act in 2015, our unions in particular, like medical unions, teaching unions, were saying that they, they didn't want to be involved in the PREVENT program because it, they felt that it broke the fundamental relationship of trust. This is the problem with the system 
that the system's violence is through its legislative, legislative process, that even when something is considered unconscionable by experts and practitioners in their field, they will still comply with it because it is now the law. And of course, the violence of that then permeates through the entire system. So those that get affected then are predominantly uh, us as Muslims. So how does prevent work? So it can work in, in, in different ways, um, I guess, depending on what context you're in. Um, I'll give you one example of a case study that came into the, into the cage office. A young man, um, I think he was in his early teens, maybe. He, uh, he had a problem with his leg. His leg was hurting. And while he's getting checked up by his doctor, his doctor starts asking him questions about ISIS. Now, there was no context within which the doc for the doctor to ask him these questions, except that this child was a Muslim child, right? Um, there was no, no parents there in that moment to help the child. It was completely an arbitrary decision by the doctor to, to use his own view of how to apply the legislation uh, in that moment. Uh, this child was, was completely, of course, upset by this experience and vowed that would he would never go to the doctors again. I'll give you another quick example. A student goes into school, uh, they're allowed to wear their own clothes on that day, and he has uh, the words Abu Bakr al-Siddiq written at the back, which of course is the second caliph of Islam, uh, the first caliph of Islam. He, um, one of his teachers sees this and thinks that it is some kind of ode to Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, the, uh, the leader of ISIS, and the, is formally referred to prevent, um, you know, the, the house is raided, there's all this disruption in their lives based on an individual's ignorance. So the, the problem that we have with prevent when it's placed on the statutory level and when it's based on these very amorphous ideas of how to spot the signs of radicalization is that what we do is that we say to the public sector that you have fears about predominantly about Muslims and these fears are uh, exacerbated by uh, politicians who dog whistle Muslims all the time by media that dog whistles Muslims all the time, by entire systems and structures that are institutionally racist and systemically racist. And what we're going to do is that in that environment, we're going to say to you that you have a duty to report on those you are worried about. And that is why you have such high levels of reporting because we are so um, exceptionalized from the rest of society on a daily basis. So it's almost like society is already prepped in order to see us as a problem and therefore report us um, due to a pathology of our behaviors and our beliefs. But in the two examples you cite, um, is the problem really one of training if these public officials were given uh, a greater insight into what are the signs of radicalization? Maybe they wouldn't have made such uh, basic errors no, because the entire way that it is constructed is structurally racist itself. So the whole idea of, um, you know, specific signs that would lead somebody to, to become a radical in itself is a pathologizing of, of beliefs and ideas. What it does is that it says that, that when a certain group of people exhibit certain behaviors, like, for example, 
um, are having mental health issues, then they should be seen as a risk that is a security risk, not that they should be treated as, say, for example, somebody who requires mental health services. And so the whole system is changed in order to place these people within a risk world when in fact they should be in a health world. Awesome. can you talk us through the process? So once a medical professional or a teacher picks up uh, something untoward in a child or in a, in a patient um, and makes a prevent referral, what happens next? So the, the, there will be a prevent officer within the school, uh, a prevent lead, who will then liaise with a prevent police officer. Now they'll, they'll take that case forward to the prevent officer. The prevent officer will make a determination, right? So sometimes it will lead to, to raids, as I've said, or a visit from the police to the, to the home or to the parents' home. Um, and they might be questioned about, you know, what, what, what's going on with the child. Sometimes that doesn't even have to take place, that it gets escalated to uh, what's known as channel referral. So they say that this is a, a consent-based system, right? It's a mandatory de-radicalization. They say that it's consent-based, but I'll tell you why I, 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 I say that it's mandatory. When they, when they come up with this idea of de-radicalization through channel, what they say is that we seek the parent's consent if the child is below the age of 18. If they're above the age of 18, then the consent of the individual. But if consent cannot be obtained, then they are able to look at solutions within the health and social services. Now, for anybody who can read legislation, what that tells you immediately, this, these subclauses within the legislation, that if consent cannot be obtained, then the police are able to go to social services and say, there is a, there is a, a serious risk to this child here. Now, social services can intervene into the family's life in a way that's far more violent because they have the ability to take the children away from their, their parents. And health services, they're able to potentially section somebody for being a risk to society. So there are all of these different kind of violent coercions that are built into the legislation that stop us from really um actually having true consent for most people any encounter with the state is already primed to be a, a violent one a very difficult one most people aren't ready for a, a counter-terrorism police officer to turn up to their house and say we think that your son is at risk of radicalization and for them to turn around and say well i don't think so you know i, I don't agree with you the vast majority of people will will comply simply because they they are scared of the state and what the state is capable of doing to them and their families right so a referral is made and a prevent officer uh, makes a designation uh, now imagine if uh, they decide there's something untoward going on here so it's it's a, a bit more serious and so they refer uh, the case to channel uh, what happens uh, in the channel process? So it can take different forms. Um, more, most often what I've seen is that it, it revolves something around the, along the lines of a theological intervention. So they have preferred Muslim interveners that have uh, contracts with the home office. They are introduced to the individual and they talk to the individual about Sufism, about, um, you know, kind of different ways of seeing the politics of the world 
largely in a process of what we might term pacification. And that is uh, another worrying part of this, that actually what they do is that they don't give um, a, a holistic understanding of what Islam is as a, as a lived tradition, but rather try and interpret Islam through a very narrow lens of what they deem to be a more passive, subservient version of the religion, which is selectively takes um, from different sources in order to justify the, um, the, the pacifist position that they're putting forward. Okay, so the government would argue that since 2012, um, something like 1,200 people have uh, gone through the channel process. And, and I suppose that, that that argument is to suggest that um, uh, it's working, right? There are 1,200 individuals who they've targeted uh, or who they've uh, placed targeted help towards. And these people have been saved from uh, potential terrorist activity. I think that number is lowballing because it, according to their own statistics, there were 1,700 um, referrals last year alone. So I think I think that the numbers are much much higher than that, and of course the, these are just the figures of the actual referrals. This doesn't include the number of people who who weren't referred, and the number of people who had an interaction with uh, with an officer or a teacher or, uh, or a doctor, where although questions were raised about them, although they were questioned, no formal referral was made. So nobody's ever done a long-term impact assessment of, of what that interaction looks like and how harmful that interaction can actually be, even when it's a, it's a, a non-official referral. But going back to the, uh, the statistics around the actual referrals, then, you know, how do you know that you've diverted somebody from a pathway to, to violence when you're operating in the pre-crime space, right? What, what they're saying is that you've got a mental health issue we're going to um, place you in this de-radicalization program. But they've got no way of knowing that that person would have gone on to become violent in the first place. And if you look at some of the, um, the discussions that have been taking place within the mental health world around Donald Trump's recent declarations that um, these individuals have been involved with far-right violence in the US, that somehow it was because of their mental health issues. Of course, this is a nonsense because there are millions of people that suffer with mental health issues every single day who do not go on a pathway towards violence, right? Actually, the numbers don't match up. Now, these people who are involved in violence may well have mental health issues, and, I, and, I, and I'm a person, I'm a founder of that myself, but it is not a risk factor um, that, that should be used in order to determine if at some unknown point in the future, almost like a crystal ball gazing that this person might might end up doing something that's violent. I would like to understand this further, Asim. So the data suggests that last year alone, these are are government statistics, 7,318 persons of interest were pursued or at least initially uh, presented to prevent boards. So that's um, 7,318 school children or young adults or those who have engaged with or interacted with a public official such as a doctor or a nurse or, or something like that. Uh, they also claim that 40% of those who were, uh, who were pre- presented to prevent were uh, of right-wing extremists. 
Now they also say that uh, after that that initial figure, one thousand three hundred and fourteen individuals uh, were presented potentially as suspects that should be pursued through channel. So that's one thousand three hundred and fourteen. After that, only three hundred ninety four actually receive channel support. Now there is something wrong there with the statistics. So seven thousand three hundred eighteen people were seen by public professionals to be potentially problematic in terms of their views. They may exhibit extremist or radical views,、uh, but only three hundred ninety four individuals were pursued through the channel program. At least they they went through the entire channel program. There is a a, a there is an obvious disconnect between the first figure and the second figure. Can, can you explain the reasons behind this? Yeah, which is one of our arguments against it, the whole process, right? That actually,、uh, let's let's take let's. This is assuming, of course, that the channel referrals themselves are legitimate referrals that they even needed to be made, right? So for a start, you know, we're already starting from a very low base here, which is accepting that these channel referrals, most of which I would argue probably didn't even need to be referred in the first place, right? That they're actually legitimate ones, but let's suppose they are.、Um, The numbers are staggering. It shows that the the level of uh, uh, false referrals are extremely high.、Um, that people are being referred all the time that actually didn't require that that referral in the first place. And and to go to the specific statistic around the forty percent of far right, that in itself is interesting for for a few reasons or、uh, a couple of reasons.、Uh, let me go through them.、And、the first one is that in Researchers who are looking into referrals of environmental activists have already started to document how they are being recorded as far right, even though they're not, in order to give the view that more far right people are being、um, are being reported than actually are, because the statistics around the far right are very very low, so the statistics are being skewed due to the conflation of. People who are being referred to as who are white, as being put through this referral process, all in this homogenous category of, of far right. But even in terms of, let's assume that the forty percent statistic is correct, right? That sixty percent of referrals from Muslims out of a population of three million Muslims, the forty percent comes from a population of fifty million white people. Now, as a ratio. The, again, the numbers are staggering because it means that almost up to a Muslim is almost up to fifty times more likely to be referred than a non-Muslim. Those ratios are staggering from any from any metric. They're discriminatory from any metric that you look at it. It means that, at, as a proportion, teachers, doctors, nurses, dentists, who you know anybody in the public sector, they're looking at Muslim kids. Fifty times more, and are fifty times more likely to refer a Muslim than they are a non-Muslim, over potential signs of of extremism, radicalization, and even then, who, what do they refer people for? If we're going to talk about,、um, you know, the far right and problematic narratives around racism, when Zach Goldsmith he ran the campaign against Sadiq Khan, what is across the board was seen, even from his own family, even from Jemima Goldsmith herself. You know, saying that this was a racist campaign that he ran. Why wouldn't we safeguard his six children 
from his own racist views. And we, the reason we don't is because we privilege certain members of society with a, a, a racist narrative that we then call part of legitimate debate. So already for, at a narrative level, some forms of, um, of narrative are privileged over others. So even if they are not based in fact, even if they are based on racist ideas, even if they are based on kind of ideas around imperialism and colonialism, it doesn't matter because that class is already privileged in a way that other communities aren't. Right. As you say, the statistics are quite startling. Um, let's say if 40% are far right or non-Muslim extremists, that leaves 4,390 individuals who are being hoovered up into this prevent process. Yet at the end of it, only 394 individuals uh, remain within the channel process. Now, surely, even from a perspective of money spent, uh, that doesn't seem like the odds justify the programme. So why do you think the government insists on maintaining this programme, yet uh, the data does not seem to help its cause of fighting extremism? I mean, often it's the case in, in government departments that after a number of years, a change of government, they uh, decide to relook at a particular project and um, uh, they call it cost saving and, and they end up axing that project. We've seen that, you know, on a number of schemes, whether it's to do with welfare or, or to do with uh, other programs uh, in, in, in terms of crime prevention. Yet when it comes to prevent, they double down on prevent. So, so why do you think they maintain this program, even though it's, it's evidently not value for money? I think they're too tied to it. Uh, structurally, they, they, they established an entire counterterrorism apparatus that has gone across the, the whole of the country and indeed across the whole of the world um, that rests on a specific logic, a linear logic about the way that radicalization takes place. For them at this stage to accept that they messed up and that they've, they've gone about this the wrong way would mean breaking the entire edifice of counterterrorism policy and legislation as it exists that is that is astronomical in its uh in, in its size okay that may explain it but but of course um when it comes to policies like the prevent program if the data implies that it's not working and uh, if their um, intention is to deal with extremism then surely they uh should think about reviewing the program and uh potentially um, at least changing the, the nature of the program. Uh, instead, each administration that comes along doubles down on the program, as I said, and uh, maintains uh, the prevent infrastructure. And in any other uh, situation, that just wouldn't happen. So I'm trying to understand what's going on here. Why does the government insist on the prevent program when it just doesn't make sense? I mean, it depends on what policy you're talking about. In terms of dog whistling, it makes perfect sense. Look at Boris Johnson, the current prime minister. You know, he's stood on stop political terror platforms before, um, you know, cage platforms, uh, well, alongside cage people, speaking against the Extradition Act 2003, talking about it being a draconian piece of legislation. What was his interest in doing that? 
His interest was that his mates in the banking sector were getting extradited to the US. And he didn't like that one bit because these are people that he knew, people that, you know, he, he, he cares about, people that, you know, he doesn't feel um, should, should be impacted in that way. So when it came to these, you know, very nice, well-to-do white people who were being shipped off to the US and us losing our sovereignty, in relation to our judicial system, then he was a very, very, he was a very strong advocate against this stuff, right? But when it comes to things like prevent, he has far more, far less invested in it. It doesn't have any, you know, value attachment to him and for the vast, you know, majority of people because it's based around race and class. It's race, it's based around people that they already don't want in this country and oftentimes come from the most impoverished parts of society. And so it becomes easy then to just vilify these entire communities because they can. They have no reason not to. Or do you think there's a more malign intent behind the PREVENT project? Uh, if uh, so few people are de-radicalised or so-called de-radicalised through uh, this channel programme, and it's really hoovering up large numbers of people uh, who are uh, mistakenly identified as potential extremists by public officials. Are they not, through this, generating uh, an atmosphere of fear? And through that atmosphere of fear, the Muslim community becomes far more susceptible to change. And in particular, the, the type of change that uh, Western society would desire. So we know it's not a hidden fact that uh, uh, the West would like to liberalise the Muslim community and to liberalise the Muslim world uh, uh, all over. And part of doing that is to pressurise the Muslim community into making decisions uh, which may lead to them self-censoring in the mosques and self-censoring in Islamic societies. I mean, I think there's a marked difference between uh, the way by which most imams deliver their khutbahs during Salat al-Jummah today than, say, how they used to 10 years ago. They're afraid. They're afraid to talk about Palestine or afraid to talk about Syria or afraid to talk about political issues. Uh, they're afraid to criticise the government in case they are uh, labelled as being radicals. And so isn't the most successful facet of the PREVENT programme not uh, preventing extremism and terrorism, because that's, uh, uh, that's neither here or there for the British government, but actually it's to uh, engage in this programme of social engineering to change the Muslim community. What I would say to that is that whether or not they mean it, it is the ultimate conclusion from the direction of travel. Um, this kind of homogenizing of um, British society, you know, based around a specific view of what British values are, and you know how those are supposed to be played out within within public life. Uh, and again, of course, there is a, a very racialized aspect to this. You know, I've spoken about that a few times already, because what it does is that it assumes that in order to be brought into humanity, you have to do and believe in certain things in the way that the dominant forces in society do, or at least the hegemonic forces. They might not even be the dominant ones, right? Uh, so 
so that in itself reconstructs the community constantly because they say, well, you know, if you if you really don't want to be considered an extremist and you want to be part of our British values, then you have to believe in X, Y, and Z. But what if you have a problem within your own belief system? Now you can only do one of two things. Either then you can resist that and say, well, actually, my idea of what British values are very, very different than your idea of what British values are, what it means to be British. Um, and therefore you enter into the space of sedition because you're being seditious to what hegemony is telling you is the right way to be, or you can assimilate. These are your two options really in this, in this circumstance. Now, whether that's, that's the specific intent or if it's happened by virtue of the way that they produce their narrative um, around the securitization of, of, of Muslim communities, that's a different matter entirely. And actually, I'm less concerned with that as I am in the actual physical manifestation of how this stuff is playing out. And the way that it's playing out is that we are being placed in this, um, this dissonant state where we have to accept one side or the other. We either have to become seditious or we have to, uh, we have to assimilate. And I think that's problematic because I think what, what happens is that it ruptures the communities in ways that are unhealthy for it. It doesn't allow for dialogue to take place. It doesn't allow for us to, to develop our own sense of who we are ourselves, our own autonomy uh, within, within both public and private life. So it's, you know, it's probably one of the hardest aspects of this entire edifice because it's about who we are and what our place is in society. Um, and that is a much larger and, and, and broader question that I think we, we constantly need to, to tackle, inshallah. Now, Asim, before I let you go, I just want to ask, are you an optimist? Uh, when a lot of people look at uh, the situation in this country, uh, how the government relates to the Muslim community, it's overburdening anti-terror laws, it's uh, securitization of the Muslim community, potentially even it's uh, objective to liberalize the Muslim community through fear. A lot of Muslims may become quite pessimistic. What's your take on the future of the Muslim community here in Britain? So, I mean, I have mixed feelings about the, the question. I, I, I do think that I'm an optimist. I do believe that um, as individuals um, and as groups, as small groups, we can bring about effective change. And because I, I'm a Muslim and, you know, the Quran itself is littered with examples of, you know, people who are on their own or in very small groups were able to achieve uh, incredible things. Um, and so, having faith in that in that idea and in the idea of that no power or authority exists uh, in the universe except that which is with with god himself you know always leaves me with a sense of of optimism that even a very very small group or an individual by themselves is able to achieve something that might seem beyond the comprehension of um anyone else where perhaps I have a degree of, of, of pessimism is, I think, in the poverty of ambition that much of our community suffers from, which is that um, I think our communities have gone into this kind of holding pattern 
of just desiring uh, a halal neoliberal life like everyone else. So they want like halal food and halal fashion and halal holidays uh, and halal mortgages. Um, so they want a neoliberal world exactly as it exists right now. They just want to have a halalized version of it. And I feel that's a poverty of ambition because it doesn't speak to the kind of systemic justice that I would like to see in the world um, that we live in and the kind of systemic change that is needed in order to overcome the problems that that people in other parts of the world that we don't see physically that they face. So the people in Bangladesh, you know, who are having to work in sweatshops where the only contract that they have is they take a slave wage or they die, that those people are still in our thinking, that they are part of the way in which we make our decisions. And I think while we retain this poverty of ambition, we as a community will never really uh, succeed or get beyond uh, the place that we're in right now. Dr. Asim Siddiqui, Jazakallah khair, may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala reward you and uh, your organisation for all your efforts. As always, let me remind you to subscribe to this podcast by clicking on the subscribe button in your favoured podcast app. Also, please follow me on Twitter, thinking underscore Muslim, that's at thinking underscore Muslim for updates. And uh, do read my article on uh, this issue as well as uh, the issues of previous programs. You can go back and listen to some of uh, my previous programs and so you're welcome to do that again using uh, your favourite podcast app. But until next week, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakat. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com.
Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com.